and welcome to Way Too Twog's Bagpipe and History Podcast, where I, your host Jeremy, explores the possible repertoire of 18th and early 19th century bagpipers. Come and let's enjoy some tunes. All too common refrain these days. This is not exactly the ex episode, the episode I expected to make, um, but had a lot of interesting comments and some help um, from the tunes and questions I posed in the previous episode about John Sutherland's manuscript. So we're going to address those. I guess first and foremost, um, thanks everybody for listening and kind of commenting and suggesting some things. Um, had some help identifying those tunes that are in the front matter uh, that I thought were called this wants to be churned. Like that's the note that John Sutherland has on there, but that's clearly not what it is. Um, Andrew O'Sullivan came through and recognized the fragment of a tune as because he was a bonnie lad. So I'm going to play it for you right now on, uh, this is David Young setting. So one of the many episodes that I thought <laughs> was going to be recording, I had already recorded, um, because it was a bonnie lad on David Young anyway. So David Young, remember is the, uh, fiddler and uh, kind of dance master and beautiful uh, calligrapher or um, writer from the 1730s. Seems like this collection from the Drummond Castle manuscript is 1737 now, is what Pete Stewart was saying um, from the people at HMS Scott. Uh, anyway, here is Because He Was a Bonnie Lad. I played only a fragment of it uh, for, because uh, that's all that Sutherland had was a fragment of it. And he doesn't have the full tune in his manuscript, at least not in the index. So anyway, here it is, David Young sitting. done, Andrew. That's a good spotting of that tune based on all of maybe three measures that, uh, uh, that John Sutherland wrote down. Uh, anyway, uh, the other tune that was really helpful, uh, that we figured out also in that same set, uh, it's, it's not exact, it's not an exact match, but it's really stinking close. Uh, Michael Roddy, uh, got in touch with me and said that he recognized, um, a big chunk of it is like a version of It Was Early in the Morning, My Love Left Me. And he's working on a, a setting up for that for a forthcoming tune book. So he shared his setting with me and told me uh, that he originally got it from Willie Ross. Unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to record these on pipes, and it is uh, too late to run out and do it. So you're just going to hear them on Practice Channer. But uh, this is Willie Ross's setting for that tune. Uh, it Was Early in the Morning, My Love Left Me. It's probably from 1869 or so. Uh, Willie Ross's collection of Highland Bank pipe music this tune isn't out there much like there's not a ton of uh versions of it so it's a it's a really big gap uh from 1785 to 1869 seeing it penned down so if anybody recognized that title in a, and other sets of music i couldn't find it on Kilshawn or traditional tune archive at all so uh i mean it was on Kilshawn. this willie ross setting was on Kilshawn, but i couldn't find any settings apart from the willie ross one on Kilshawn. Anyway, it was early in the morning, my love left me from Willie Ross.
think, you know, beyond just tastes evolving, um, I'm not crazy about Willie Ross's settings uh, in general. Uh, I do like that one pretty good, but I, uh, as much as Roddy, Michael, Michael's setting was harder for me to figure out at first, which is why you don't have it on pipes. Once I kind of looked at it as a march rather than a jig, it became a lot easier and a lot clearer what he was going for and how the tune is supposed to sound. Um, so anyway, here is Michael Roddy setting again, just on practice channer. Um, yeah. Thanks for sharing it. It's lovely. And everybody should look forward to getting that tune book i'm a sucker for like historic fonts and the font that he has for his tune book looks pretty similar to the one that i'm using for the podcast and the one i'm using for the podcast i like made a bunch of uh put in too much effort to make sure that it was a font that uh perfect the closest font to robert bremner's font uh in his printed collection so uh, if you're a font head and want a good 18th century font that scottish music publishers used you can look up the ugly QUA font uh, on like various font sources out there. Uh, anyway, here is, it was early in the morning, my love left me um, from Michael Roddy's setting. Yeah, I, I really enjoy that setting. So thank you, Michael, for sharing it. And I'm really looking forward to that tune book. So hopefully when that comes out, we'll be able to snag a copy and play through some tunes and let you all know that it's available. In the meantime, you should check out uh, uh, Michael's band, Arise and Go. They have a great Bandcamp album, or bait album, a great album that's available on Bandcamp, rather, called Meeting Place. And if you somehow don't like if you're listening to this podcast and you don't know who Michael Roddy is, that's sort of absurd. Um, he's essentially like, what if Jeremy Kingsbury was a professional musician? Um, cause he plays all the same instruments I do, I think. And then some, but you know, Ellen pipes, border pipes, Highland pipes, small pipes, and does them beautifully well. Uh, he presented, uh, as an instructor at Piper's gathering a couple years back. So I'm, I'm hoping at some point I get to rub shoulders with him. I was first exposed to Michael Roddy via, um, the droning on podcast and, uh, he has a lovely interview with, uh, James Moyer. So you can go check that out too. If you want to learn more about Michael. So anyway, thanks for the tune. Hey, speaking of James, uh, it's a small secret, not really a secret at all that, um, James and I and John Charles kind of have a, an ongoing chat where we are talking to each other pretty regularly. Um, and, Anyway, James is one of these, like, absurdly generous people uh, that I always, like, don't know what to do about. Uh, but he sent John Charles and I both, like, a care package, and it included some uh, some local craft beers that he doesn't get to enjoy, uh, or he doesn't partake in, but he's curious about them, so he sent them to John Charles and I, and this is Wasatch Brewery, so Wasatch District uh, Pipe Band. I recognize this language only from James's podcast, um, but this is Polygamy Porter, and I love a porter, um, but apparently, you know, there's not a ton of alcohol, right, <laughs> in Utah, uh, but yeah, I like the idea that the local brewery makes a bunch of Mormon pun uh, alcohol, right? Like, I guess that's what you do. Uh, anyway, so thanks, James. Uh, and this beer is like really the just the tip of the iceberg. He sent a new shirt, sent a shirt for Robin that fits him and immediately got covered in yogurt um, and some art to help me decorate the new place. And that's the other thing. A new place. I'm like one of the many reasons that this episode is going to be a little bit late uh, as I'm very busy. Uh, we are in the process of buying a house and uh, should be moving in October. So I'm really excited to... Um, have a, a better sound setup. Like where we are now isn't terrible, but it's not soundproof. And I'm in a basement. Um, and I'm going to be in a basement at the next place too, but it'll be our place. So I can like put up soundproofing stuff. And I also think there's a part of the basement that's very far away from the bedrooms 
um, that is carpeted. So I think I might actually be able to play Highland Pipes inside while people are sleeping and it might not carry enough to wake anybody up. I'm not sure about that yet, but that's me hoping anyway. So I'm pretty excited. I recently <laughs> was working on a recording, which I'll maybe share with you for Halloween or something, but I was like recording a tune for uh, a gig uh, or for, for a customer, I guess, client. I don't know. And, uh, I went out to my garage to record it. Like I do when I'm playing Highland pipes now, but I have neighbors directly across the way from us. Somebody moved into the house and, um, yeah, I was sitting there recording tunes and I, I had that experience that you get the meme about, right? The, my neighbor came and knocked on my door at 2am. Thankfully I was still awake playing my bagpipes. So it didn't wake me up. Like he didn't knock on the door, but, um, I was playing bagpipes in the garage at about midnight, maybe 1230. And I assumed that it would be fine, but, um, but yeah, neighbor started as Harley and like loudly, idled behind the garage like right behind where I was playing for maybe five minutes and like I was trying to record a professional level take to to give to somebody so like okay I guess I'm I guess I'm done um but yeah and then the next day the neighbors saw Laurel walking outside with Robin like hey does your husband play bagpipes or just listen to them I was like oh god it's full-on I definitely bothered the neighbors from playing music uh at 1 a.m um anyway so thank you James for the polygamy porter which is delicious and thank you for the housewarming baby warming stuff I'm um pretty excited to check that out. And the reason I'm saying thank you here, because like I said, James is just so generous. He's one of these um, monstrous people that are generous to a fault and also uh, like carry out acts of kindness all the time uh, by like using the post office and mailing things to people. And I'm just, you know, I've decided that my gift for people like that is to accept those things because I just can't reciprocate. I'm terrible at sending anything in the mail. Um, but I do have a podcast that James listens to, so I can publicly thank him a bunch, which is what I'm doing here. Uh, so yeah, anyway, thank you, James. Uh, someday, maybe someday I'll be better at the post office stuff. And every time I see a thing that I think, oh, I should send that to James, I'll, I'll actually do it some, somehow magically. All right. More thank yous are in order. And really this entire episode has shifted gears basically because of one man, which is, uh, Stephen McNally. So, um, Stephen McNally listened to the episode and was looking at Baltiara and he's like, gosh, you know, that Baltiara kind of looks like, uh, suitors of Selkirk maybe. And that just led to me playing through so many settings of suitors of Selkirk. Um, and I also noticed like Stephen, he, he took the Sutherland setting and moved it into a Mixolydian. So like it sits really well for people who play Lowland pipes. It gets up to a high C, uh, actually it gets up to a high D, uh, which is pretty tricky to do, uh, on like a Lowland pipe chanter, but on, um, one of John Swain's border pipe chanters, the continental ones that would get up there just, just fine. Uh, anyway, I didn't, I didn't get a chance to record it. I didn't realize quite how cool a setting he had made was, and it's just too late, as I just mentioned, <laughs> to go out there and record it. So we might hear it again. I don't know. Uh, anyway, so that's what this episode turned into as a deep dive into Suitors or Selkirk. Um, the funny thing is that like Baltihora or Baltiora or the, the various kind of Irish versions of this, like Sutherland uh, is a piper in the lowlands, right? In, in Aberdeenshire. But he he's like doesn't call this tune Suitors to Selkirk. And he doesn't have a setting for Suitors to Selkirk in his collection. He's got the, the Irish setting. And I don't know what to make of the fact that he calls it Baltihora. Uh, rather than Baltiora, which is what a lot of the Irish settings call it. I don't know if I'm to believe there for that, like, Sutherland did or didn't speak Irish. Like, it feels like he heard somebody describe the tune and he just wrote it out and it came up with a really different spelling um, than pretty much anybody else does. Um, so I'm not sure if that means he speaks Irish or not. Although, as we'll talk about in a second here, the, like, Irishness of this tune is also in question. So anyway, in case you don't remember what I'm talking about, uh, I'm just going to play you Sutherland's setting for Baltihora again, and then we'll kind of talk about the historic versions of this tune. So here is John Sutherland's setting for Baltihora. Mm-hmm. 
So when Stephen started saying, hey, that sounds like Suters of Selkirk, you know, I was familiar with Suters of Selkirk from Dixon. Um, and, you know, it, it's a tune that shows up in quite a lot of manuscripts. So, like, I've seen it around, but it always struck me as too hard to play or something. Like, it wasn't on my radar of, this is a tune I want to play. But I really like, <laughs> I really like this one, Bellatora, um, or Bellatorum, or whatever. Um, so I wound up doing a, a big deep dive on Suter Selkirk, but then I was like, well, what about Bellatora? Like, w- what else exists of this tune? And there's quite a few settings of it as well. There aren't many old ones. Um, Bunting has it, but Bunting says that it's probably ancient, but he didn't hear it. Like, he got it from somebody in 1832. So the... I don't know. I'm not sure, uh, like, if we should believe Bunting uh, and his explanation of it, which we'll get to in a bit. Um, but there are quite a few publications of this tune in Scotland. Of course, as we've mentioned before, there's not a ton of... Uh, there isn't the same kind of robust catalog of Irish printed music uh, the same way that there is for Scotland. Um, but the it, I think it's telling that the one source that we do have from, like, the early 1800s, uh, Smollett Holden, who... If you recall, he's the guy who published uh, Walker Jackson's book after Walker Jackson died. Like, he got a hold of all of Walker Jackson's settings. Now, we've played through Smollett Holden stuff before, and we've even played this tune before, Ballatura, uh, when we, uh, back in season six, did a playthrough of uh, Smollett Holden's first book, The Collection of Irish Airs. So, like, the fact that it shows up in one of the few accessible Irish collections does make me think that it's pretty old in Ireland. Uh, it isn't in the really old one, the 1720s uh, Irish country dance collection from the O'Neills. Um, but it is around. Anyway, let's look at the the next setting we got. So we just heard Sutherland. Uh, it also shows up in James Aird, uh, although it is firmly in the era where James Aird is dead. So this is the McFadden years, um, but this is Bellatura is what it is called here. And Aird's, Aird setting fits on Highland Pipes uh, like in that comfortable nine-note area. So I played it on my Quiet Piper Small Pipes, and I was, oof, oh boy, uh, I was playing around with the tuning of the drones. And so this is two Gs and a D drone going, and I absolutely love the sound. There's just so many Gs in this tune, uh, and the Suitors of Selkirk versions too, but there's so many Gs that just sound really good with a G drone going, so uh, anyway, there's, this performance is a little more like, ooh, listen to that drone. Uh, it gets pretty bad uh, later on when we're listening to a McGibbon setting of Suitors of Selkirk too, but uh, anyway, here's Bellatura from James Aird on Quiet Piper Small Pipes. Speaking of me owing a lot of people, thank you. Uh, thank yous. Anyway, here it is. Bellatura. <laughs> So if you remember, James Aird is a uh, music publisher in Edinburgh and uh, has these lovely collections of tunes, but Aird is really, <laughs> it, it's, it's really easy to see Aird and McFadden, who kind of replaces Aird once he dies, uh, they just copy stuff. Like, it's really one of the fun things about Aird is to see where they're copying stuff from. Um, so lots of Patrick McDonald stuff turns up in Aird with different titles and some parts missing. Uh, Walker Jackson stuff shows up in, in Aird with stuff missing. So it makes sense to me that um, some stuff that Smollett Holden winds up printing would be in there. Um, 
there is an error though. I think I think there's an error. That ending of the second part, uh, he ends on an E. Da 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 dee. Like it's a really weird note, and really no other settings end that way. But his, you know, aired setting is almost note for note the same as Smollett Holden, except for that note. Now, interestingly, Smollett Holden's book came out in 1807 or so. At least that's what it seems like is when it came out. It's possible the dates might be a little bit wrong. Uh, But Smollett Holden was publishing in Dublin. But like I said, Smollett Holden got a hold of Walker Jackson's plates and many other musicians and people that published music um, prior to when he published his book, right? Like he was took other people's stuff to print it. Um, Anyway, so here is uh, Bolitura. Uh, Let's see. Baltiora. Baltiora. So it's spelled the same way, which matters in this case because they all spell things a little bit differently. Uh, but yeah, so Baltiora spelled the same way as Aird has it. So I think Aird is copying the same source that Smollett Holden is, even though Smollett Holden publishes it in his collection of favorite Irish errors around 1807. So like a good five or so years after that volume five of James Aird. So uh, anyway, we've already played it, I think, on pipes on the podcast. So I just did a quick reminder of this tune on Whistle. So here it is, Baltira from Smollett Holden with that note correct. wild when I think about it that the oldest setting we have or that I know of of Baltiora comes from John Sutherland like it's again like this Sutherland manuscript man like it's so cool like there's so much interesting stuff in it and if I have a hard time finding like a lot of Irish stuff from the 1780s so it's just cool that stuff that is well enough established that it shows up in some really important Irish collections is already in Sutherland's manuscript in the 1780s Again, in an era where it's kind of hard to find printed music from Ireland, and maybe it wasn't hard back then, maybe it just hasn't survived that much, but I, th- I get the feeling like it's hard, like there's not a bunch of music leaving Ireland in printed form. Individual tunes, maybe, and broadsides and stuff, like Jackson's Morning Brushes everywhere, but the fact that Sutherland has such a funky name for it, too, Baltihora, like, I think he learned that, I, I just, in my head, it feels like... Sutherland got this tune by listening to a musician and said, what is that tune? He said, oh, Baltiora. And then Sutherland wrote out the tune, wrote the title Baltihora rather than Baltiora, right? Like, I don't know. I'm I'm imagining this tune uh, making its way around the sessions, you know, in, uh, in the 1780s uh, where Sutherland is playing and like that oral transmission of tunes rather than printed stuff. But could totally be wrong could absolutely be wrong about all this. <laughs> uh, anyway, let's look at uh, another favorite Irish piper, a mine O'Farrell setting, which is predictably wild and unlike anything else. So here is O'Farrell set- uh, setting, and he also calls it Balthy Aura. Uh, so B-A-U-L-T-H-Y-O-U-R-A. Wild spelling. Uh, and here it is as a 9-8.
it's wild. And apologies for my playing there. I'm uh, I'm gonna blame Patrick Hutchinson. Uh, watching Patrick play at the Piper's Gathering made me so desperate to slow down and play things slower. And uh, I'm working on it. And like you know, if this podcast is for anything else, it's for me to explore historic settings and also to become a better Piper. And uh, there's some work in progress stuff on this episode. Um, but yeah, interesting setting. Another Piper's Gathering thing, though, is sort of interesting. Like, uh, the way that I figure out which way to play that C, like if it should be the the C natural or the whatever uh, on Island Pipes, like, I just play it both ways and see which sounds better. And Baltiora is a weird tune because it sounds pretty good either way, so I really uh, need to have uh, some music theory information, maybe. I'm kind of resistant to it. Rod Nevin is, like, threatening or offering both uh to teach me some music theory some basic stuff and i sort of am hesitant like i you know i'd like to know that stuff there's a part of me that kind of am empowered by the ignorance and like making i feel like i've made good music accidentally uh sometimes or stuff that i really like but um yeah as i was trying to figure out quite exactly how i wanted to play that c uh for o'farrell setting i thought oh dang it rod got me <laughs> this is definitely a moment that i should uh I should have a little bit better music theory understanding. Uh, anyway, so there's Balthi Ora from uh, O'Farrell. If we go, I guess, next chronologically, we get to Bunting. So Bunting publishes this tune in 1840. So remember Edward Bunting collected harp music at the 1798 Belfast Gathering. Uh, we've played him on the podcast before. Simon Chadwick has that awesome series of, uh, of playing through... Uh, Bunting's like live notes because what Bunting did right is he went and recorded all these Irish harpers like in the old tradition and then took all this amazing music and then wildly changed it so it would fit on the piano um so it's sort of annoying but he recorded live notes that are not set for the piano so you can get a better idea of what the harpers were doing uh this tune is not one of those uh this is interestingly like I said it's from 1840 his last book uh, the ancient music of Ireland before he died um and it is comfortable it's in a key that makes sense so it's not kind of messed around to piano stuff um and since bunting you know has this history of the harp and I was a glutton for punishment and didn't realize that I'd be subjecting you to two practice exercises in a row uh this is me playing uh Balatorum on harp um so bunting has some theories about this tune and he really basically o'neill francis o'neill comments on bunting's write-up in enough detail that i'm just going to read o'neill's thing to you um so Francis O'Neill, in his 1910 book, with the greatest title uh, ever, right? This is his Irish folk music, a fascination, uh, fascinating hobby. Um, he wrote about this tune. He says, a very ancient Irish melody is Ballatorum. And oddly enough, it is known only by versions of that name. While euphonious, it conveys no meaning to the reader. And it is commonly assumed that notwithstanding its Latin termination, it signifies something in the Irish language. And so it does when understood. The first writer who undertakes explain it is Edward Bunting. Balti Harboran, usually called Balatorum, is a tune which might perhaps, without rashness, he says, be assigned to the pagan period, inasmuch as it is still customarily sung at the bonfires lighted on St. John's Eve, the anniversary of the Baltine, and has so been sung from time immemorial. He does not give the translation in English, although his dissertation is much more comprehensive than the extract above quoted. To the writer, it appears to be the song of praise or worship of Baal, the fire god. The pagan festivals eventually were wisely turned into account as Christian holidays, and in this instance, the Baltin, or fire lighted to welcome the Samhain, or summer solstice, was continued as a celebration of St. John's Eve. The melody, Conran tells us in his National Music of Ireland of 1850, may be still heard from the groups assembled around those bonfires. In the writer's boyhood days, the melody was forgotten, and so was the pagan significance of the celebration. In O'Farrell's Pocket Companion, etc., before mentioned, the name of the tune is printed Balfi Ara. In Aird's selection of Scotch, English, and Irish and foreign airs, it is Baltiora. Haverty, in 300 Irish Airs, calls it Baltichorum, 
the same title given by Bunting over the printed music, regardless of his explanations. The air, or rather dance tune, as Baltiorum, is also one of the numbers in Bland and Weller's annual collection of 24 country dances for the year 1798. So yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, there's a lot There's a lot to like about that, I guess. Oh, Neil, man. Guy's, guy's fun read. Um, anyway, here is Edward Bunting setting, and as O'Neill is kind of suggesting, bizarrely, when Bunting is writing about the tune, he calls it Baltiorum, uh, but then when he is <laughs> has it in there, it's Baltachorum, Horum, uh, in there, and goes on this long thing about Latin. It's just, it's just wild. Anyway, here is uh, here is Bunting setting with me kind of limping away on harp. The other thing, I, I kind of mentioned this when I played O'Farrell's setting, saying it was a 9-8 setting. Uh, they aren't all. That's, that is, I guess, the other big difference between Smollett Holden setting and James Aird. Smollett Holden has it as a 9-8. Aird has it as a 6-8. Um, Sutherland has it as a 3-8, which is wild, uh, <laughs> wild to look at. Um, when uh, Ross Anderson, right, of Ross's music page, who kind of hosts this, he wrote it up as a ABC and put it in a 9-8. Um, but yeah, looking at Sutherland's original 3-8 setting is kind of fun. Um, yeah, Bunting's 9-8. And then this next one is also a 9-8. And this is our last dealing with uh, Baltiora, and it's maybe the, like, Rosetta Stone again. It's wild to, like, read O'Neill and Bunting... Well, Bunting, it doesn't matter. Like, they, Bunting predates Goodman. But, like, it's weird looking at O'Neill. And I guess he just, you know, Goodman stuff wasn't out there yet. Like, it was sort of, I think it was still hidden, right? Um, or undiscovered, as it were. So, um, Goodman's setting has a, an Irish name that is a lot more easily translated, I think. Um, Balati Mora. Um, and it's, I mean, when I say it's a lot easier to translate, I just mean that it, like, Irish Google Translate <laughs> works, or Google Translate works on it for Irish. And it seems to mean, like, place of a big city. And I've seen some other stuff on um, Traditional Tune Archive that said something about a song house or something like that. So I think it's the big urban city or something is what this this tune maybe is in Irish. But uh, anyway, here is Bunting's setting for it. Bunting, um, as much as I said O'Farrell does his own thing completely, I think... Um, not Bunting, rather, Goodman. Goodman setting is, I think, the same as O'Farrell. So I played it on Irish Pipes again, but I used a sea chanter this time to differentiate it a bit. And I, can, I think I like it better on a sea chanter, honestly. Um, anyway, so here is Goodman setting of um, Balthiora.
Doesn't that just sound lovely? Remember how good that sounded, because uh, I'm about to torture you. Uh, so yeah, that's that's it for Bellatora, um, Bellatomora, whatever it is, uh, the Irish version of this tune. So what got me going on this whole thing was Stephen McNally saying, hey, that sounds like Suter's Selkirk. And I, you know, I, I looked through William Dixon, the William Dixon book. Matt has a lot of concordances and stuff there. He doesn't list... Um, Suter's Selkirk, like, having this concordance with Irish music. Uh, he might say that in the Vickers book. I, I didn't look through everything, but, uh, I don't know. Steve McNally might have cracked this nut. I'm, he might be the first guy to do it. Um, anyway, here is the oldest setting I'm going to play. This is from Daniel Wright's Area de Camera. Suter's Selkirk, the oldest setting for it that Matt and most people have identified, comes from Playford in the 16. 16- uh, kind of late 1600s. It doesn't have the title Suitors of Selkirk. It's just called Scotch Tune or Northern Tune or something like that. Uh, but I'm going to play this Daniel Wright version. The thing that I like about Daniel Wright's version, uh, first, I really like those settings, the Aria de Camera books. Those are the ones where he kept on publishing. Like, basically, Daniel Wright would put out a collection of tunes that would have uh, an Edinburgh fiddle master, a Welsh... Like, he would do, like, these trios of, like, Scottish, Welsh, and Irish, or Scottish, English, and Welsh, whatever. He'd have kind of expert musicians give him tunes that he would publish. And his setting for Suter's Selkirk is cool, but it uses a high it uses high C's and high B's. And I thought, like, oh, that'll be fun to do. I gotta get in the habit of using that Henderson chanter that I got specifically for playing second octaves. But it goes from low B to high B, which translates to not terribly possible. Um, so... You know, the first two parts go along really nice. The third part is where it does that high B, high C stuff. And I tried to make it musical, uh, but I really just tried to slow it way down so it was achievable to get an idea of how it would sound. So anyway, the the tune sort of breaks a little bit. Um, the sixth part also has some high Cs that throw me for a loop a bit. Uh, the seventh part has some high Bs and Cs, but I think that works out a little bit better. Anyway, here is Suter's Selkirk from 1727, played on Highland Pipes so that I could practice using those high Bs and high Cs. And, like, I'll just I'll just be real. I'm not happy with this, um, but I need to start playing that chanter to, like, break it in and get comfortable with it or it's not going to get better. The funny thing is it feels great on the fingers. It's so squat, but... Like, I, I'm not happy with the tuning on it. I gotta make some changes. So, anyway, here is Suters of Selkirk from 1727.
yeah, I don't know, I maybe shouldn't have included it, but I I need to start getting used to that tone too. Like there's some parts about that chanter and the tone that it gives that I really like and it sounds so old to me. Like it it very much sounds like old piping. Um it triggers something in my head from like listening to old recordings of, of bagpipes. Um I don't know, like I didn't listen to a lot of old recordings of bagpipes as a kid, but it reminds me of like the first like Black Watch band album I had or some some old recording of a pipe band. It's just got a real old sound. Um but I think it might have a real old and out of tune sound. And the reed is so soft that it's there's a real fine point to uh getting it in pitch. So I, I just I just have to play the heck out of the thing. And I have so little time to pipe now that means you're gonna hear it as I'm getting better on it. Uh anyway, uh let's go a much more <laughs> polished instrument. This is um yeah, this is William Dixon setting for the suitors Selkirk. Uh, this is Matt Seattle's version of William Dixon setting on Quiet Piper Small Pipes. So much lovely. Suitors of Selkirk, right? So Selkirk's a town uh, in the, the lowlands, and suitors are kind of what people of that town call themselves. It's also like cobblers or shoemakers. Um, and this melody is like, I think it's the town tune, if I'm understanding Matt's uh, footnotes correctly or endnotes correctly. Like it's played at the, we're, we're the, on the festival when you go around to the borders of the town, they play this tune, right? Um, and there's words to it too, but I, I didn't get around to it and we're running out of time. So we're not going to get to the words this time around. So anyway, here is William Dixon's uh, 1733 setting for the suitors of Selkirk. Every time I play a Dixon setting, I regret 
that it's been too long since I've played a Dixon setting. There's a couple um, composers that are like that in this episode. This next one, too. This is William McGibbon's setting from a collection of Scott's tunes. This is the third book in that series. It's published around 1746, and uh, it's a good setting. Again, it fits on small pipes, and uh, so I did it. And this was when I first was playing around with doing that two Gs and a D tuning on the Quiet Piper small pipes, and I kind of fell in love with it. So I played through McGibbon twice, one slow, one fast, and then I just left the recording going where I, I kind of kept wanting to hear that drone tune. So anyway, here is a 1746 William McGibbon setting of the Suitors of Selkirk. <laughs> Listen to that drone. Just wild drone sound. Absolutely wild. I love it. Love it so much. Um, yeah. Thanks again, Rob. And those Quiet Piper small pipes are just absolutely gorgeous. All right. Let's jump into border pipes. This is sort of the reason why this episode happened. Uh, is I was looking at Oswald's Caledonian Pocket Companion. And again, I, I really love Oswald's settings, but they're really challenging, uh, which makes them kind of fun. But, uh, you know, he wrote for flute for German flute and there's some things that just aren't possible sometimes but Suter's a Selkirk setting is interesting because it it works on border pipes like he uses like the the highest note that uh, Oswald has fits perfectly on my John Swain border pipe so I transposed this so I could play it in G and uh, it kind of sounds the same honestly but um but yeah, here it is. This is another one that, like, remember how good those Quiet Piper small pipes sounded. Like, we should be so grateful for that. Because this is another one that's like, I fell in love with this setting, but my ability to practice it until it was perfect ran out of time. Like, so I recorded it, and it's on the podcast, because I, I kind of want to put it on the album next year. But I need to, like, there's a couple of these parts that are very musical to me and there's a couple that i haven't quite cracked the code yet which is like how all these variation sets work right like 
like Dixon especially, there'll be several, you know, several variations that make total sense, and then one that just completely breaks the rhythm until I think about the tune for a lot, and I need to do that with this tune still, like, I just can't, I can't, I haven't figured it out yet, but it's an 11 variation set, so like, there's a lot, and then it also finishes with a jig, and when it goes from, you know, Oswald says slow, and then brisk for the, the jig at the end, and like, yeah, I, I kind of fall apart a little bit on the jig. But anyway, here's the Suitors of Selkirk. This is published in Oswald's Caledonian Pocket Companion in the 1740s, probably 1747. Um, but he's one of these cats that like kept on publishing book after book of the same title. And then he died, and uh, I think Bremner started publishing his stuff. So it's really hard to know, kind of, I have a hard handle on the start dates of this stuff. So anyway, here is Suitors of Selkirk from Oswald on John Swain Border Pipes.
I just love it. And it's sort of wild. I was looking at the endnotes in uh, Matt's, you know, William Dixon book, and he, he calls Oswald's, I can't remember what exactly he says, but he's, he's clearly not impressed by this setting, but I love it, man. Uh, I think there's a lot of pretty great potential there. Um, yeah. Really looking forward to tucking back into that when I have a little bit more time to spend on it. Uh, all right, let's do... Jeez, uh, already over an hour. Okay, uh, let's do next one chronologically. If that was 1747, let's go next to... Uh, I think this is a 1750 setting from Walsh's Caledonian Country Dances. The date of that feels weird to me, like Walsh's earlier, generally. But anyway, here is uh, Suitors of Selkirk. Gosh, that wasn't flawless either. Uh, all right, well, we're over time, so uh, we're just going to go out. <laughs> I plan to do a bunch of the other John Sutherland stuff I recorded, but this is a whole episode of Suitors of Selkirk and Bellatora. I don't know what my takeaway is, other than, you know, get on you, Steve McNally, for noticing that these tunes are so related, and they're so clearly related. Um, and I don't know, when I started looking at Suitors of Selkirk, I wanted to record the James Oswald one on the album, and then after playing through all the Irish ones, I might want Bellatour instead? Like, uh, I don't know. Hard, hard to know. Uh, anyway, we're going to go out on a setting from 1854. This is the Suitors of Selkirk from John McLaughlin's Piper's Assistant, which is just such a lovely book. Uh, weird, over-the-top embellishments, but the cover art is hilarious. So, uh, anyway, here is Suitors of Selkirk. Thanks again to Stephen McNally and to Michael Roddy and Andrew Sullivan and uh, James Moyer for kind of helping out making this episode possible. So, uh, anyway, thanks everyone. Uh, keep in touch. Uh, if you have any favorite stories of this, there's a cool Halloween story. Maybe I'll, if I get a cleaner version of, if I get a clean version of one of these tunes that I've given you a bad version of, maybe I'll include it in the Halloween episode so I can tell you the, the story of Suitors of Selkirk that has a Halloween, uh, background to it. So anyway, cheers everyone. If you want to support the podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash way too twog. We'll be back in a couple weeks and here we're going out with the Suitors of Selkirk by John McLaughlin.